and welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the co-founders of JB Scrub, Julie Bowen and Jill Byron. Julie Bowen has been acting professionally since 1992, perhaps most notably spending 11 years in the role of Claire Dunphy on Modern Family. Jill Byron spent close to two decades in publishing at Condé Nast, working across titles including Vogue, GQ and Vanity Fair. Both mothers of sons, Julie and Jill got to chatting at a birthday party about the changes their sons were going through as preteens, realising there was a glaring gap in the market for a skincare brand aimed at young men, given the existing offering was either too young, too overtly feminine or just that bit too adult and intimidating rather than easy and fun. JB Scrub spent three years in product development, ensuring each of the five formulas was perfect, with not a single corner cut and each product being certified European Union compliant for clean skincare, and launched in January of this year. Less than two months in, the brand already has multiple new products on the horizon, as well as plans to launch internationally very soon. If you are listening from the United States or Canada, JB Scrub have an exclusive 15% off discount code for Glow Journal listeners that I will pop in today's show notes. In this conversation, Julie and Jill share how their respective careers in show business and media have affected their personal relationships with beauty, their advice on having difficult conversations with adolescents, and Julie shares how playing the role of a mother of three prepared her for her own motherhood journey. Okay, so we start every single episode in the very same way. What is your earliest memory of beauty? Julie, perhaps we'll start with you. Oh, God. My earliest memory of beauty was my my mother's mother, my grandmother, coming to stay with us. I grew up in Baltimore. And her looking in the mirror, and we had a shared bathroom in the hallway, and she said, oh, this lighting is awful. And I remember thinking, lighting can be awful? It had never occurred to me. I just thought she was just putting on lipstick and I thought she was very glamorous, you know, putting on lipstick, getting sort of dressed for dinner. Mm. And I thought that was very glamorous. But then I remember, then she said, this lighting is awful. And it was the first time I realized we sort of have some kind of control over how we're seen. And I've never forgotten it to this day um, because we did have those, we sort of had these tube uh fluorescent lights that were kind of bluish oh yeah and she was right that lighting was awful (laughs) really awful but that's one of the first times i realized oh well when we we can see different things when we look in the mirror i was probably about i don't know five or six wow okay what about yours jill oh you know i was thinking what comes to mind is it was always about lips. So I loved lip glosses. It was about like the Bonnie Bell lip smackers and kissing potions. And I just was enamored by all of the different lip things that I was allowed to wear, right, at a very young age. Mm. And then, um, you know, going to department stores and just being blown away by everything that you would see. Everything looked so large and sparkly. Um, and I knew like, oh, I feel very connected to this. Like, I love the sparkle. I love the color. This seems to be the trend. Every time I ask this, it always comes back to beauty being kind of more of a feeling and realizing that, okay, I can do this, this, and this, and it's going to totally change how I am for the day. Yeah. You had some control over it. It was something you could do, you know? Yeah. Mm. You could, you could change how you felt by sort of like in acting there's sort of like inside out and then there's outside in acting where like inside out is where you're building the character from like how you know only from your feeling and outside in is much more like as my mother would always say everyone feels better with a little lipstick on and I I was like I I I, I always thought that I'm like that's not true and I'm like well my version of lipstick is mascara so yeah absolutely okay so clearly you both had an affinity for and an understanding of beauty from an early age. But what did you want to be when you grew up? Jill, if research serves me, you studied business, marketing, management, radio and television. Was a career in media always the goal for you? 
Oh, absolutely not. No, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, so mm -hmm. entertainment was in my backyard. One of my first internships was working for a production company. And then I was working for the Young and the Restless, the um, wow. soap opera. And that was fun. It was a casting um, job. And I always thought, I never knew this. How dare I, you I, held out on uh, me? I never knew this. This is fun. Gemma, I did not know this. Okay, keep talking, sir. Yes. No, so I, I absolutely loved working in casting. I then went on to work for Elite, um, the modeling agency, as a booker. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even today, the things that I do, that we do, it is casting in so many ways where we're looking for talent, whether they are our influencers or we're looking for a creative resource we're casting that so i guess when i think back it always it started way back then but um for 20 years i was actually in publishing i started with teen magazine mm -hmm. um and for like had the opportunity to work for conde nast and work for some of the most iconic brands whether it's vogue or gq teen vogue allure um, but always from the business side. Iconic is putting it very, very lightly, which we will get to. What about you, though, Julie? I know that you went to Brown. You were performing a bit throughout your studies. But did you always want to act? Um, in my family, I, I have a family of three girls. And I'm sure that a lot of what families are the same where they sort of get that. You sort of have a, do you have siblings, Gemma? Only child. Oh, interesting. Okay, so they, they mm. don't have this. Where everybody sort of gets their role. Oh, he's the sporty mm. one. She's the smart one. He's the artistic one. My older sister, Molly, was the actress. And she was very good. And um, she really is far more talented than I am. I've said it a thousand times. Um, and so she, that was her role. And you couldn't, that was her territory. You didn't go in there. So mine was, I was artistic. But I really wasn't. I, I mean, I, I, I was not that artistic, but I would go up, be shipped off to art lessons and charcoal drawing, still life things. And then my younger sister, Annie, was the smart one who was going to be either a veterinarian or a doctor. And uh, somewhere along the way, we all always put on plays in the backyard. We all always performed for anything, we were always we would get a uh, those Betamax cameras or VHS cameras, mm -hmm. and we would we would make our own commercials. We would imitate whatever we saw on TV. We would try and do it shot for shot. We were obsessed with television, um, so it was something we all knew we could do. And then somewhere along the way, Molly and I just sort of flip flopped. Molly's really genuinely artistic, but has no ability to have the door slammed in her face over and over again. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Acting is the wrong field. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, slam away. I'm fine with that. I don't care. <laughs> so while I will always give her credit, she was, uh, she's a much finer actress than I will ever be. She's really good. Um, but she's also an excellent artist and designer and she's an interior designer. Who's really, really great. Mm -hmm. So I thought I was going to do something in the art world. I thought that's what I was sort of being groomed for in my family and my education so, and I thought it was going to be art magazines, interestingly, like, uh, and I was fluent in Italian. So I was, there was an uh, Italian art magazine called Flash Art. And I thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work in an Italian art magazine. It that's makes no sense. such a specific sense. goal. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Well, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. The only thing I wanted to do was act. But that seemed like, well, you can't just do that. That's silly. That's what you do in your backyard for fun. And look at you now. Yeah, I know. I want to work through the the kind of respective timelines that eventually brought the two of you together. I'll start with you, Jill. You worked in roles for Bottega Veneta, Tiffany & Co. when your career was in its infancy. I really did a deep dive. But you did spend, as you've mentioned, decades at Condé Nast. You worked for titles including Vogue, GQ, Vanity Fair, Glamour, Allure. So when you said iconic before, I feel like that doesn't really cut it, but sure. So as you can imagine, I have a few questions sure. about this time. I asked someone this recently and I would love your take. You started in publishing in around 2004. You were there right up to August 2020, if research serves. Obviously, the medium's have changed, 
But do you find that the content that consumers are asking for has changed dramatically? Is it much the same? Is it cyclical? How has that shift happened in your eyes? That is such a great question. And you. you know, ultimately, it's it's quite the same in the sense that like it's purpose. So mm-hmm. as a as a publisher, as a magazine, as a brand, like our purpose is to entertain, it's to inform, it's to inspire. And the content that was created, it may have started out as like more long form in magazines, but as consumers think, you know, we have less patience and we want like shorter bites of information, that's where we've seen the evolution. And so it's how we consume content as well. So it's quick form video and um, it's, and you know, even for a, a brand today, you cannot sit on just one particular platform. Um, even with JB Scrub, like the content that we create for our, our audience has to be different across all platforms. But, um, you know, going back to like, it's to the actual premise, it, it, it hasn't changed. And it is, we continue to inform, entertain, um, and inspire um, uh, an audience. You're not wrong about people being impatient. I'm like reasonably late to TikTok and I'll post a two minute video and all of the comments are like, get to the point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's this idea that if you see it, you should be able to literally touch your screen and buy it. Mm. Yeah. We were just talking about this the other day with our own product line. Like it's not enough to click through. They want to be able to go, Oh, I like that. And you're immediately taken to a shopping cart of sorts. It's so instant of, I like it, I want it, I buy it. I sound like Ariana Grande, but yeah. (laughs) That song is the theme of my life, so don't you worry. Jill, you worked across the style and luxury categories. How do you feel that working within the fashion and beauty industries as opposed to working in, you know, an unrelated field and just being a consumer of fashion and beauty, how do you think that's impacted your relationship with beauty overall? So I, you know, as it, as we talked about it, I had this passion for beauty, um, but I had the opportunity to go behind the curtain and see how brands were manufactured, how the marketing behind a, ba- a brand um, was organized, how what the go-to-market was. So having that knowledge, that's helped us go-to-market, produce, JB Scrub, um, and, you know, still with like, the same amount of passion as being a consumer, but my expect our expectations of what we must deliver. Also, um, we we know that like it has to be perfect, and um, that's what we've set out to do. You've given me a really beautiful segue. Thank you, because obviously the way in which you're communicating with the JB Scrub consumer it's going to be a little different to how you would communicate with say the Vogue reader, but right. what skills have you found to be transferable? What lessons have you taken from your time at Condé Nast that you're still applying to your work now? Sure. I mean, Condé Nast, like we were held to a much higher level of accountability than perhaps um, other companies. And like, that is something that like Julie's work, work ethic, um, our partner, Rachel, her work ethic, we all juggle quite a bit, um, but we all have to work with speed and agility. Like every day it's what's the next project? What takes priority? Okay, so that didn't work out. How do we turn that around? Um, and those were some of the same key functions when I was at, you know, from the publishing side at Condé Nast. Um, another element I think that's really important is that if you remember, I was on the on the publishing side, meaning I was approaching my clients and asking them for millions of dollars for ad spends. And those customers Mm. came first, like they were number one. And that's how we view our audience, our consumers, they're number one. So the expectation is high that we must respond to their questions. Um, Our customer service must, um, again, operate with speed and agility. Love that. All right, Julie, your turn. You have been acting professionally since 
1992. So you would have only been 21 or 22 when you really uh-huh. entered the public eye. This is a formative time for most, myself included. Similarly to what I was just talking about with Jill, how do you think being in the public eye, in that space, from that age, has impacted your relationship to beauty? Oh, boy. I mean, and how has it evolved? You know, I I was, when I started, um, everything was, if you went into a a casting or something, it was, uh, there was a Polaroid. You know, everything was analog. And now, and then as um, I got started, I think one of my, I think the the second or third series I did was called Ed and it was in New York and we were still shooting on film, but we started hearing about these other shows that were starting to shoot digitally. And I thought, well, what's the difference? And I think I turned, I think I turned 30 on that show. And, you know, you're, you're used to seeing yourself sort of blown out or sort of uh, on film. It's much more gentle. Um, The lighting at least traditionally was much more gentle and, uh, there was airbrushing. I, I was a um, spokesperson for Neutrogena a couple times during my life, and and they used to airbrush the McJesus out of me, and now they don't. You know, so there's this this expectation that as the the cameras get stronger and the definition of the TVs gets higher and everything's under digital, that you are somehow gonna look better with it, and it is almost yeah. impossible. There was a time probably in the early 2000s when I just thought, great, I'm finally have my career in a great place and I can't turn on the TV and watch myself because it was the light was too green and the and the skin was too like, it, you just see the makeup. It was awful. And I had to really learn to say, I'm not going to watch myself um, because my relationship to my own you know, in quotes, beauty is um, really getting distorted and unhappy making. Um, it was really tough. Now it's evolved. Now I'm also, I'm just old, which is great because I look good for old. I can hack that. I can accept that. Um, it was it was much harder in some ways to be a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old when everybody's got like plump, lovely skin and their bodies are perfect and they just... You know, there's a busload of supermodels that drops off every afternoon in Los Angeles. Um, But it is a war of attrition, if you want to look at it that way. I've stuck it out for a long time. And I think I can really appreciate the the lines that I've earned, um, the scars and lines and, and that I've earned by and and not feel like I have to be perfect in front of a camera and appreciate a little bit more that I my face has character now this character is lines but it's still character I just can't imagine being bombarded with it and then having to kind of consciously like it's enough for me to see a photo of my face on the side that I'm not that keen of so I can't imagine turning on the television and like there you are it it is um there's times when you know it's cringe making and you just back away um I was lucky. I did Modern Family for 11 years. And during that time, a, a comedy will traditionally shoot much further away because you want to see both people in the frame. Close-ups aren't funny. That's that's for drama. So mm. more recently, I did, um, I did a couple movies and I was playing the mom and it was very realistic and it was very tight. And it's the first time I'd really seen my real face, not far away, not in a frame with somebody else. I thought, Oh, I really took a gut punch. I had, I, I, there were some tears shed. And then I thought, this is it. What am I going to cry over? I, I look like I look, I look, I look Mm. like I look and it's fine. I'm not going to go around and airbrush my, my whole life. There's nothing I can do about it. My friends and the people who love me, they see my face. They know what I look like. I'm the only one that wasn't aware of it because I hadn't really, you know, taken the moment to go, Oh God. So that's it. Um, it's it's not easy, but it's also I, what are the alternatives? You everyone starts mm-hmm. to look the same. They get all the fillers and the plumpers and the and and then they all start to look exactly the same. And I know that that is not what I want. I want to mm-hmm. I want to look like someone who's actually in her fifties. I mean, a good version. Don't get me wrong, but oh, an unbelievable version. <laughs> I want to look like a good version, but there are some. <laughs> actresses who you go honey it's too much 
Mm. You know, and they're so talented. And then you look at like a Julianne Moore and I'm like, yes, please. Oh. Can I be you, Julianne Moore? Just, she just she looks is exactly immaculate. right. Perfect. Mm. And yet not silly looking, not stupid with all the fillers and the crazy face. No, she looks gorgeous. You mentioned 11 years on Modern Family in mm-hmm. there. I did want to ask about this while we're on just the ways in which your career has impacted other parts of your life. You were pregnant with your twins when you shot the Modern Family pilot. Yes. You were already a mother to a two-year-old. Yes. But then <clears throat> this is so interesting to me because then you're going to work mm-hmm. and you're playing the mother of three older children, yeah. pre-teens through to adolescence. Yeah. This might be a silly question because obviously it is acting. But did playing that role for 11 years teach you anything about motherhood? Were you going to work and getting any sort of an insight into what those preteen years would have in store once you got home? It was less in playing Claire Dunphy as it was in going to work every day with particularly Nolan, um, Nolan yeah. Gould, who played my son. He and I met when he was 10 and my baby. And he's like a genius, isn't he? Yeah, he's Inventa. He's yeah. brilliant and I love him. So I had babies and he was my baby blocker. We called him because he was exactly the height of my giant distended stomach. And watching him as a 10 year old. So I knew him from, we worked together from 10 to 21 and we're still really close. But in those years where he was a preteen and a teen, it was the first time I'd had a really close relationship with a, with a boy. Um, I only had sisters. I went primarily all girls schools um, until I was in my later teens. And then into college, I really didn't know what little, not little boys, but like, young 10, 12, 13 year old boys were like at all. And what I got to realize by working with him every day is, oh, it's changing. It's gonna change. There's gonna be an annoying phase. Oh, and here's a great phase. Oh, and here's, we're just back to being a kid again. And it it got me prepared for, it's not one thing. Um, I thought I knew what girls were and that they are complicated emotionally. Boys are complicated emotionally too. They just have a different way of showing it. They're just gonna throw something at your head. Um, so I, I did learn an enormous amount by hanging out with Nolan day in and day out. Um, he has a mom, he has a lovely mom, but he allowed me into his world in a way that I am forever grateful for and really helped me become a mom of boys. It's a, such a unique experience because teachers aside, there are so few careers where you get to go to work and not only work with teenagers younger people but also learn from them very few people get to do that yeah and there's some kids are very actory um Mm. and some are preternaturally mature rico was rico rodriguez he is the most he is that little adult person Uh, even at age 10 when i met him so uh, while i love him there were not a lot of phases he was he felt like this this like perfectly formed little man. Um, Nolan was just a, a boy who then became a teenager and he liked girls, he didn't know what to do. And he worried about, you know, his skin, his hair, his height, his smell, his whatever. And we got to all be part of that and sort of this gaggle of adults who adored him. And he was um, so generous to let us all in. You are both mothers of sons. Your boys went to school together, which is how I understand the two of you met. I believe it was at a birthday party that the seed that JB Scrub was planted, like it kind of grew from there. Can yeah, we, you talk me through it? Yeah, we were at a birthday party at um, for a friend of both of our children in Encino. And we were standing at the entrance to the garage. I remember there being a bucket of uh, like a bucket on the ground of drinks and there was wine in there. And I was thinking, should we? But I don't, I, th- that was one of the things I was thinking about children. The whole conversation was, should we be drinking during this? Because it might help. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but we were just talking about how our boys were really starting to come home with these ideas. I'd hired a Manny for the summer, the summer pre- previously. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine's son had come to work for us for the summer because I thought that'd be fun. And every night he would get ready for dinner and spray himself with the spray that shall not be named. I've been told not to go negative, but I think we all know what I'm talking about. And it was like, yeah, like napalm. um, But there's like cedar napalm and sage patchouli napalm. It's napalm. It was awful. 
And I thought, Jill, they smell and this is the option. And I was just bitching about it, to be honest. And Jill, being Jill, said, well, let's do something about it. Like, I don't, what are we going to do? Like, I, I that just was the silliest thing I'd ever heard. But then it, we kept talking and I had been approached by several different companies to partner and slap my name on something. I thought, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I would much rather, had I known how hard it was going to be, I don't know what I would have said, but I I'm still would rather do the hard work like we did together to make something that we fully believe in and can put ourselves behind 100%. I mean, we tested it on our own kids. Um, and Jill, being Jill in her quiet way, just kept following up and kept following up. I was like, I don't know, I don't know. And then my my business partner, Rachel, said, this is a really great idea and I'm going to make you do it. So uh, Rachel, who's our third partner in this business, she just doesn't love to be on camera so much, mm -hmm. is, um, <clears throat> is was responsible for pushing me over the edge, but Jill presented the edge. And Jill, had you had any of these kind of thoughts about starting a business prior to that fateful birthday party or did this all just come from this one conversation whilst deciding whether or not to open the wine? You know, I had always, I know, right. You know, I had um, always thought about when I was meeting with brands, like, okay, what, what need are they filling? Right. And I had met ironically around this time with a couple of brands who were talking about launching um, a skincare for tween girls. And they were talking about how there is this gap in the market. And I was thinking, okay, well, I do have a son who's this very same age that you're talking about. And so I would say like, and what are you doing for the boys? And the answer was, no, no, we're, we're only speaking to a female audience. And I thought, you're missing out on me as a mother of a son of this mm -hmm. age. And you're also, you know, there's my son who, you, who needs a message to him. And um, so I, I kept... Again, it was a repeated, repeated um, conversation with multiple brands, and I had um, a colleague in the industry who became our consultant for formulation, and she too had a, a son the very same age and was going through the same question of like, what do I give him? I don't feel comfortable giving him my $50 products that are in glass for his bathroom that are clean. And yet I don't feel comfortable giving him manly products, which are way too mm. chemically formulated. So when we came together, it was, okay, so Julie's also experiencing this. I've talked to friends in the industry. I know who to go to who can help guide us along. Let's do it together. I have a question on sort of hitting this time as far as parenthood goes, I have a lot of parents that listen to the show explaining to an adolescent that their body is changing, their skin is changing, that there are certain hygiene changes that need to come with that. I can't imagine that that's an easy conversation. So do either of you have any advice on having conversations with your children that might be a little bit uncomfortable? Uh, I, I like to leave a lot of books lying around. <clears throat> Love that. My kids, when they were younger, when they were about eight, nine, maybe 10, they would have more conversations and I would always let them lead it. Just like they led the, you know, what are babies made of conversation back in the day? I would only answer the question you're being asked was the direction I was always told. I was like, well, what question were you asked? Were they made of, you're not asking how they're made. I mean, what if they're made of? So I was always letting them sort of lead those conversations. I remember when we talked about women getting their period and um, one of my my sons saw that tampons in my bathroom and said, you know, what do these do? And I explained and he panicked and said, is that going to happen to me? And I said, no. And then he was perfectly fine to talk about it. But you do cross a threshold, I find, around 12 uh, 11, 12, definitely by 13, where they don't want to hear it from you um, at all. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you've laid the foundation and I am a big believer in, I buy a lot of books about uh, dating, sex, how to treat women, um, uh, uh, how bodies change, um, drugs, 
I put these everywhere so that they can stumble. And not only can we have the conversation, but they are free to read these books and get the information they need. And I've read them. So I know that they're good. I love that. What about you, Jill? Yeah. I mean, I will tell you that having like the first, so the oldest son, that was Mm -hmm. the more difficult one because you know, who is he to learn from? Like ultimately the message is going to come from us. So um, books were definitely one resource that I too like, had, but also, you know, just buying the products and having it there in his bathroom because like that bathroom door closes and we don't know exactly what's taking place all the time. So like making sure like there was a deodorant in there, making sure there, there were the right, um, the body wash. And then as we explained, Obviously, we created this line, but he's been a part, all of the kids have been a part of the process, um, which you like better. I mean, this, you know, this pad, the other pad, which moisturizer, how does it feel? So um, I think even if I didn't have this line, you know, with Julie, I would still be, be the products would be there and just exposing them and saying, like, which one do you like? And But, you know, Jill points out something really interesting, and that's, you know, I said, I've left these books around and I've read them and I know what they say. The same, that was the approach we did to our packaging, because we know that the boys close the door and they're alone in there. You can't have, you can't have this much writing on the back of your bottle, Mm. you know, you can't have a 14 step process and you know, tiny, 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 tiny writing. It needs to be, because they're not going to go, mom, how do I use this? They, you're lucky if if you just capture their attention with the color of the bottle, the shape of it, maybe the marketing, whatever it is, and it's in their shower, and they can look at it and go, oh, I get it. I mean, it says pump twice, wash, pits, nuts, butts, and feet in that order. Like it's really direct, and it's it's sort of the equivalent of like we know we read that book, we simplified it down the 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 body care book so that they can take ownership of it. Nobody wants to be introduced to like the 17 step method that they can't remember or do. My kids still struggle with when does the moisturizer go on? I'm like last, just last. And there's My still times. My 32-year-old has the same problem. So it's fun that they don't <laughs> age out of that. Right. So we try to make it like really easy. And so when they, when they stumble on it, they can take ownership of like, oh, I get how you do this. And they don't have to, nobody wants to ask their mom into the bathroom at a certain point to go, how do you use this? Mm. So we we had to make it very simple. Okay. So you've identified this glaring gap in the market, but where to go from there? It's one thing to have this great idea. Obviously, Rachel's given you a kick up the backside and said, (laughs) all right, we're doing this, but bringing it to life is this other thing entirely. How did you go about finding a manufacturer sourcing and developing that packaging. There are so many steps involved with physically bringing a brand to market. Well, I was very lucky because I got stuck in, I was stuck in Canada and Mm -hmm. doing a movie and all of that, all of that nuts and bolts stuff. Cause I was there, I was only supposed to be there for three months and I was stuck there for five months. All of that went on to Jill and thank God because she was the exact right person. She'll, she will tell you then the rest of the story. It, well, so we are like, we're very fortunate that we live in California and there are quite a number of resources. So mm-hmm. we had them in our backyard and we wanted to use a, a contract manufacturer that was here, labs that were here so that we could physically go in and see what, what does it look like? Who are the people who are creating this for us? Get to know the, the chemists. So um, we tapped into local talent that was here. When it came to our our creative team, they also were local, um, local guys from Venice, California, surfer and a skateboarder who really were able to tap into like the essence of this audience. And um, even our, our 3PL, our warehouse, it is here local in California because once again, like we want to be able to be there, see like the workings and be able to wrap our arms around this project. So um, it was all very locally created. And how long did the process take? How long was it between those initial conversations and then the range being available in January of this year? I'd say three years. 
Yeah, it was from our initial conversation, like from that conversation that took place at the birthday party. Um, Julie was still with Modern, Modern Family, like it had not wrapped yet. Um, so I was working on speaking with um, formulators and contractors and creating a business plan um, all during this time. So if you think about, again, from that initial conversation to when we launched, it was three years. But like we had products in hand, I would say, like two and a half years later. It really took a while because another thing that was truly unique about this was that we were creating custom formulas. We weren't starting with a stock formula. Mm. Like we were very specific about like what we wanted, what we didn't want. Our packaging like, could have taken like no time at all, but we were very specific on like it must be this particular shape. Um, and we don't want your stock color we want a custom color and it cannot have a wraparound label which would have been far easier it would have cost less um but even our boys like the inspiration came from them by them saying like we don't like bottles that have paper labels wrapped around them we want something like this is cool it's a it's a different color and we love that this logo is screened so we took cues from them and it took longer in order to create something that custom. Being so particular about what you want, I mean, from my perspective, it's essential, but of course, a lot of brands will cut those corners because it's costly and it's timely. What were the biggest lessons that you took from those three years? Patience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like we had, we just had to be patient. Um, and also insisting on, uh, you know, precision and like a perfect quality too because even thinking about our packaging we have a very intricate logo and our packaging is screened on the logo and when you screen um on a on a rounded surface there's so much more um opportunity for it not to be perfect so we we you know, told um, our, our suppliers a few different times, like, no, it's not perfect. So a lesson in, in that was truly like, just be patient, they will get it perfect. And they did. And, um, but again, it goes also back to like, keeping things close, close to home was important too to be able to give feedback quickly. Jill is really the best at that. She tests, she's the one who's like, you know, we need to go to the factory to look at the screening. I said, okay. And I'm like, it looks good. And she said, and, and Jill is this quiet sort of um, ninja assassin. She says, no, it's not. And that means we're going to keep doing it. And you go, oh, she doesn't yell and scream. She doesn't pitch a fit. She just quietly says, it needs to be perfect. And this isn't right. And then we go back and do it and then do it again, do it. And I'm always shocked because she's always right. There always is an improvement to be made and, I felt great when we did nail it. The range is European Union compliant for clean skincare, which I imagine would have added a significant amount of time to that product development process as well. Why was that so important to you? So we always felt that, look, our, we, we're creating a product that is for young teens, tweens, right? For young boys, it absolutely could be used for all genders. When we were doing our research, we didn't find these products like in Australia, in the UK, like Europe, Asia, like we were digging deep um, globally. So we thought when we create this, we need to be compliant with um, the EU. And so, yes, it took longer for uh, all of our testing. So once again, like we had to be patient. Um, but when we did go to market, we also found like the world was chiming in and asking, when can we get this in our country? So on a global basis, there is interest. And um, we're, proud, we're very proud that we did comply to all the EU regulations. Well, I can confirm that that interest very much extends to Australia. You've launched with a body wash, body spray, face lotion, face wash, toning pads. Why those products specifically? So we felt that this was... a a great um, entree into like, how are we going to get these boys to start taking ownership, right? And the easiest product was the body wash. 
you're hoping that they're mm-hmm. using something right now. Maybe it's their baby wash because that's what like that's what our sons were using. Like we're gonna we're gonna transfer them from using a baby wash into something that's now created specifically for them. And then the thought process was, okay, what's next? So their face is changing. It's becoming more oily. They need their first face wash. And so we have our face wash, the moisturizer, um, the toner pads, and then, oh my God, they are getting stinky. So we had to come up with the alternative to the other brand and create something that was a clean body spray. The other brand. We all know it. I I know that the range contains pre and probiotics, but what more can you share on the formulas themselves? Oh, well, Jill was great at this. Jill, I have to say the one thing that she made me learn was we all know what salicylic acid is, right? Mm -hmm. But our toner pads have succinic acid, which is gentler, but it still basically does the same thing. And that's exactly the kind of stuff that, you know, while I was sitting in the hotel room in Canada that Jill was spoon feeding me to understand and learn about that we had to meet our customers exactly where they were. Salicylic acid isn't exactly right. So she went through everything to find all the right ingredients such as, and she'll continue. Yes. So succinic acid is definitely one of the hero products for the toner pads, the face pads, um, the face wash, as well as the face lotion. But like you know, even like digging deeper, we're using chia seed and chia seed is our prebiotic. So we know Mm -hmm. chia seed because that's something that we might sprinkle on our yogurt. It might go into our smoothie. It's a great prebiotic, but actually in its form of for skincare, it's fantastic for being a anti-inflammatory. It's, it's antimicrobial. And this is one of the ingredients that's used um, throughout all the all of our products and the formulas. And then we also include like willow herb and willow herb is also like a very soothing component. Um, it's anti um, antibacterial. And again, like we're thinking about these kids and like, they're getting dirty. They're still young. They need something that's a step up from what they're using in the baby world. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's also clean. So these were just a few of the ingredients that we've included throughout the collection. This might be the million dollar question, but is there a trick to getting preteens or in some cases, reluctant partners to look after their skin? Wow. I mean, Yes. To me, there does get to be a point, of course, our goal and and anyone's goal is to head it off at the pass, like introduce them, get them in early so they know what they're doing early. Um, For my kids, it was those little, it's pre-acne. It's, they're those little white things. They're not whiteheads. Um, They're just, they're sort of blocked dead skin building up on the face because they're not properly washing it and exfoliating in a gentle way. They're either attacking it or they're just not washing it at all. So when my kids started coming in with those going, what what is this? What are these? And are they zits? I'm like, they're not zits. That is dry skin that is clogging your pores and creating these little bumps. And it's, I call it pre-acne. It's has actually nothing to do so much with acne like the hormones do later on. So when they got concerned, I'm like, aha, here's an opening. You know what you can do? You can wash your face twice a day. You can use toner pads and moisturizer. Um, Sitting somebody in front of a mirror every now and again, it's not a terrible thing. (laughs) Vanity Mm -hmm. can be a really good driver. And um, we're hoping to introduce to them, you know, again, some of these adult male body sprays and products have done a great job at basically selling sex they're you know Mm -hmm. sprayed on and the women come running it's literally like money and chicks come from the sky and if we can kind of find the version of that that is much 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 more age appropriate that says listen people are paying attention to how you smell and it's not great so and you you can control it instead of just saying Ew, you smell, you can do something about it and it doesn't have to be uh, this heavily chemically scented stuff. So listening to them, watching them, um, mentioning things that, you know, don't, don't criticize without offering a solution is the, is the short answer. And, you know, we're hoping that for at least this age range, we are offering a solution. It's not just like, oh my God, you smell. I wish I could figure out how to make the sneakers stop smelling 
because that mm. is just painful. Um, and I swear that is my life's goal to figure out how to make them stop because that is something I just criticize with no solution. But when it comes to the body or the face, I can say, Hey, it's not what you're doing. Isn't working here. Try this. Don't criticize without a solution. Yeah. Mm. And it's working. If you know, mm-hmm. the customer feedback has been tremendous. We are having mothers and um, fathers write in to say, oh my God, my 12-year-old son is actually now taking a shower. He actually is saying that he likes to take a shower. He's using the product. Like his face is clearing up. He's, this is like, so it's very gratifying for us to, to hear from the consumers that finally something's been created just for their kids and it's working. And so it's, and even using like pits, nuts, and butts, like that's become a tool for parents to use mm-hmm. with their kids. So um, whatever it takes, right? Yeah, whatever it whatever takes. It takes. <laughs> JB Scrub might be new to market, but you have both been connected to the beauty industry in one way or another for some decades now. Over, let's say, the last few years, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry? So that is such a great question, and um, it's so timely too. It's it's about transparency. Consumers mm-hmm. are demanding, like, what truly is in this product? What are your qualifications? Um, when you say clean, what exactly does that mean? So it's brands are are having to like truly, or you know, no pun intended, come clean with what they are producing. And I feel that that's just, that's standard practice. It should be standard practice. Um, There's also another, a number of apps that consumers have as tools to look up. What is that ingredient? What is she talking about, systemic acid? Let me dig deeper into that. Um, And so that's, you know, from our perspective, that's been very important. And then like, when you think about, you know, we're not in color cosmetics, but obviously inclusivity. And, Mm. you know, even as even for our brand being inclusive. um, So that's another important theme that is that we hear about now that just it's, it should be standard practice. And then of course, sustainability, like sustainability is something that many more people are thinking about. And, and that was also important to us as we created our brand. And like, what are those alternatives to packaging? And um, we, we have some solutions coming up ourselves. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. And what changes do you think we can expect to see from the industry over the next few years? You know, it, again, more innovation. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Julie. No, 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 no. More, I mean, more innovation. I did what Jill was saying about it used to be that one aisle that was clean, that one corner of the store mm. that was clean or sustainable. And now as we're, we're meeting with all kinds of uh, people, investors, um, people with lots of experience in beauty, retailers, and they, they all go, clean's a baseline. That's, that's, we yeah. expect that now, like that now is just the baseline. And like Jill said, now we really want to, what kind of clean, is it Credo clean? Is it EU clean? Is it um, clean for Sephora? Like every, these, the standards are getting higher and higher. And I think there are going to have to be more and more innovations to allow that kind of transparency and that kind of clean to be in, in all the products that, that we're getting. Um, and I, as far as, uh, like women's products, you, this is my big, my big, have you noticed, Chill? Everything's about your scalp. It's not about your hair anymore. It's about your scalp. Yep. Everything. Oh, yes. I haven't, I haven't stepped over because I have fine white trash hair that is, it's just what I have. You know, it's a fine line between debutante and, and trailer. And, um, <laughs> and, and mine starts in the morning can be debutante and by 4 p.m. it is greasy and sad. So I haven't I haven't personally stepped into the scalp market yet because I'm nervous about what it'll do to my sad fine hair. But that is that's that's one of the innovations I'm most excited about and would like to explore maybe for us as well. I'm into it personally. You are? What do you like? There's a lot of this Briogeo do a really good 
scalp situation. Yeah, but do you have? Are you? Mm. Do, yours hair's thick and juicy. Yeah, I got very lucky in the hair department. It mm. feels like a bit of a wank for me to recommend products when I'm like, <laughs> this is just going to do what it wants to do. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. Mm, blessed. All right, Jill, Julie, my final question: What is next for JB Scrub? Well, we are working on shampoo. Yeah. Heaven. And yeah, and Jill, that's from consumers. One. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean the shampoos come from our from our consumers, like, and it actually like lends into what we were talking about with scalp, in, in the sense that like people have said, like, can you use our body wash for shampoo as well as body wash? And like the short answer is, well, you could. However, how you formulate for a body wash is entirely different to how you formulate for a shampoo. So we specifically have a shampoo that will be coming out fairly soon that we're very excited about. Um, and then, but prior to that, you know, we talked about sustainability and like we have these incredible bottles for our body wash and we don't want to see those being tossed into a recycler. Like we want those to be refilled. So you will soon see refillable um, options for our products as well as travel size that will, again, once will be refillable thinking about sustainability and of course the um the the holy grail of beauty sunscreen which um we want to really nail we um everybody's got different uh we were just talking to some uh, interested retailers in canada who have an entirely different set of qualifications for spf um so we have to be incredibly thoughtful about how we do spf we have a formulation right now that we really really like that's gone through sustainability i mean that's sustainability a stability testing but it, we don't know if it would be a perfect fit for every market and we don't want to launch anything until we know it's an absolutely perfect fit so that one will be coming up too it goes back to patience, right? Like we'd love to get it out there immediately, but it must be truly perfect, universally perfect. That was Julie Bowen and Jill Byron, co-founders of JB Scrub, which you can find on Instagram at JB Scrub. To read more, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me. The Glow Journal podcast would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced. We pay our respects to Elders past and present.